This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It isn't a crisis only when it's in Iowa. It's a crisis when it's in any city, county, around the country. And it's a problem that's far too pervasive in too many poor communities and communities of color. Like fine wine? You know, a good election count takes time. Maybe you'll have to wait a day or two. Introduce transparency and accountability into these sort of algorithms of exploitation and manipulation, which is for their bottom line, it's bad for democracy. It's not actually that difficult to find any number of opportunities to um, get involved if what you're interested in is helping people exercise the most fundamental right that we have. Hi, and welcome to Amicus and the fifth and final part of our election meltdown series. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and this past Wednesday night, I had the extreme honor and privilege of being joined on stage by a voting rights and election integrity dream team. Former Florida gubernatorial candidate Andrew Gillum, MacArthur Genius Fellow Danielle Citron, the ACLU's Dale Ho, and of course, Rick Hassan. Slate Plus members are going to have access to an extended director's cut of this live show. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, be sure to check it out at slate.com slash amicus plus. And I want to take a minute to thank Slate Plus members because their support is actually the reason we were able to bring you this special series in the first place. We promised our live show would offer solutions. Spoiler alert, there are no short-term quick fixes, but you are going to hear a lot about things we can all do, things that shore up public faith and confidence in our elections, and help us avoid the election meltdown this whole series has been sounding the alarm about. One more thing, there's a bit of a recurring visual joke that goes throughout the show. So there was this rather lovely little rug uh, on the set, and it became the place where we metaphorically threw all of our worries and concerns and nightmare scenarios. So that's what the rug reference is. It's just the repository of everybody's fears. Make sense now? Good. With that, we head to Washington, D.C. for Amicus Election Meltdown Part 5. Hi there, Washington, D.C. Um, thank you. Those of you who've been listening along as we've been doing this election meltdown series, uh, asking ourselves the seemingly complicated new question, can American democracy even survive the 2020 election? We're hoping to find some actions, some real solutions, some rallying cries that will allow us to say, hell yeah, we're going to thrive and survive and be better after the 2020 election, and here's how we're going to do it. So I am going to be joined here on stage by a brain trust that is like no other, uh, that is going to help us hack this little problem. And I want you to welcome each of the amazing guests we have here tonight. So I'm about to be joined by Andrew Gillum. He is the former mayor of Tallahassee, Florida, the former Democratic nominee in the 2018 gubernatorial election in Florida, 
And since his narrow defeat in that election, he has focused his efforts on voter registration, founding Forward Florida Action to that end. Please help me welcome Mayor Andrew Gillum. We're going to bring on Danielle Citron. She is a professor of law at Boston University School of Law, where she teaches and writes about privacy, free speech, and civil procedure. She's also a 2019 MacArthur Genius Fellow, and she is vice president of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Please join me in welcoming Danielle Citron. Next, we bring on Dale Ho. He is the director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project. He supervises the ACLU's voting rights litigation. Dale has active cases in over a dozen states right now throughout the country. He argued the census case before the U.S. Supreme Court, and he argued Fish v. Kobach in Kansas, a case that we've talked about an awful lot in this election meltdown series. Please join me in welcoming the wonderful Dale Ho. And that brings us to, last but not least, UC Irvine law professor Rick Hassan. He has been my co-pilot for this series. He's the author of the book, Election Meltdown, on which this series has been based. And he has been our election law Sherpa throughout the series, thank God. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming the wonderful Rick Hassan. So let's do this thing. Rick, let's start with you. I'm sure everyone's listened to every second of the last few weeks, but can you remind us sort of why we're all sitting here, what it is that we were doing and why we undertook to do it in February uh, before the election? What are we looking at here? Well, I, I, think this is an, I think this is an easier conversation to have thanks to the Iowa Democratic Party, um, which illustrates how many things could go wrong in, uh, in, in an election. And in, in the book Election Meltdown, I talk about why trust in American elections is declining. People are worried that their votes are not going to be fairly and accurately counted. A recent NPR study found that over 40% of the public is worried that their votes are not safe and secure. And so the purpose of the book and the purpose of our podcast series is to ask, why is this happening? And more importantly, what can we do to make it better? And so the book went through and the first four episodes of the series went through four reasons why trust in American elections is declining. Uh, first, voter suppression efforts that have been passed in mostly Republican states that have convinced Republicans that voter fraud is a major problem, uh, even though it's not, and convinced Democrats that Republicans are trying to suppress the vote, which they are, but they don't always succeed at doing. Uh, the second problem that we talked about in the second episode was incompetence. Pockets of incompetent election administrators. And these can be Democrats or Republicans. We tend to focus our most attention in large Democratic cities because that's where there are more votes. And in those cities, sometimes the voters are hit with a double whammy. First, uh, they have very poor election administration, and then they're accused of participating in fraud. Third problem, dirty tricks, and we talked about those. That was uh, not just the Russians doing their uh, thing in 2016, but also old-fashioned tampering with ballots. We saw that in uh, Bladen County, North Carolina, where a congressional race, first time in recent memory, that's a redo a congressional race because there was actual fraud in that election. Not the kind of fraud 
that, ju that justifies the kind of laws uh, that we talked about in the first episode. And then the last issue that we talked about was this increasingly incendiary rhetoric about stolen or rigged elections. And there, uh, we talked about uh, Trump, uh, a lot about Trump and how he's claimed that elections are stolen or rigged. He's called on voters to watch other communities and to look for fraud. But we also talked about how Democrats talk about stolen elections too. And we talked about the very difficult question of what do you do in a place like Georgia where you had the sitting Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, who was not only running the election, he was running for election. He was running for governor, running the election, did a whole bunch of suppressive things. We talked about those in the fourth episode. Is it okay to call him the legitimate governor of Georgia? And so we, we had a very uh, intense conversation with Carol Anderson, a professor at Emory, about that. So that was the first four episodes. The last chapter of the book, the one we haven't talked about yet, is, well, what can we do about it? It's nine months before the election. What are we going to do to try to minimize the chance that in November, when 47, 48% of the population is going to be very unhappy anyway, no matter what happens, uh, that they're going to say, okay, we lost the election, but we think it was a fair election the way it was run. We're going to fight another day to be back in office. And I want to really, um, just as a precatory note, put out there something that's been sort of a sub-theme of the whole series and is a sub-theme even today. I'm looking at Dale's face, and he's really, I think, uh, articulated back in the green room that part of the problem is having these conversations that, uh, you know, Homer Simpson famously said, like, beer, it's the cause of and solution to every problem. In this case, I think the cause of and solution to this problem is that these very, very intractable issues that we are kind of exploring in depth in this series make people feel hopeless and make people feel disempowered. And we've had a lot of listener mail from people saying, holy hell, this is really terrible. Maybe my vote doesn't count. And we have been trying to sort of thread the needle throughout this series of being honest about the problems, but also honest about the fact that you have no choice but to vote anyway. And one of the things we want to talk about here tonight as we talk about solutions is the ways in which there is not an existential problem here. These are systems problems, largely, that we can solve, but it requires confidence that systems work. So I just want to put that out there, and we can sort of debate that proposition, but I do think that it's incredibly difficult to have a series about a thing that is going to make people say, maybe I don't want to vote. I want to turn to you first, Andrew, because you know Rick opened uh, with the Iowa caucus and this sort of cataclysmic meltdown that we saw and you wrote uh, a piece uh, in the post saying pretty explicitly this is getting a lot of attention and it's a lot of white people and it doesn't get attention when it's people who have black and brown skin for whom every single election looks a lot like this and I wondered if you could sort of amplify your concern about how we have just come to live in a universe in which it is simply understood that you are twice as likely to have a malfunctioning machine or some other system problem if you're a person of color and that Iowa was not the first. Yeah, no it wasn't I don't know if I'm supposed to ignore the audience or not, but hello, everybody. Uh, this is our. <laughs> this is. Um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm honored to be here, uh, um, and I actually do think that it is important that we talk about these issues and illuminate them uh, in a way that I think don't leave people sort of depressed. 
um, and thinking that they shouldn't uh, participate in the process because it's not fair, but hopeful about what we can do about it and also very present with the things that need to change in cities, counties, where most elections, frankly, are administered and in states all across the country. Uh, I did talk about I was on I was doing uh, some CNN uh, coverage of the results from Iowa. And I watched the slow meltdown of nearly every panelist uh, that night as we kept saying, well, where are the where are the results? I mean, this is this is right now around seven o'clock and folks were getting impatient. And I just had a, a thought that at so many precincts, people are waiting for hours just to get in there to cast a ballot um, to maybe even later find that their vote wasn't even counted or maybe get inside and be told that they're at the wrong precinct and not have the agency to then say, well, I want a challenge ballot. Uh, maybe um, it is that you were in line, but because you had to go to work and you don't want to lose your job, you had to get out of line. And so uh, I think about the polling precinct where I go and vote. Uh, where if, and I live in a, 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 a pretty you know, nice neighborhood in, in, in Tallahassee, Florida, if those folks who I vote with are not in and out of there in like 15 minutes, they're like, what is going on? The, 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 the system must be broken. I'm, but if you go to many neighborhoods of, of color where so many of these precincts have been collapsed into one, where um, there isn't enough support staff for folks to be able to move through it expeditiously, there's just an expectation that you're going to be there 45 minutes, an expectation you'll be there for uh, an hour. Now, whether that's, that's right or wrong, it just struck me that on this particular night, and I will concede that the problems that we saw in Iowa should not have happened, but we were blowing all the way up, not over the fact that there were issues around whether these votes were legitimate or not, but just whether we were getting the results in the timely enough manner that we wanted them. And what a luxury it was for us to have that issue and not a question of, can I vote? Will my vote be counted? Is my name on the roll? 300,000 people in Florida have been purged in 2019 from the voter rolls. So if I showed up, I wouldn't even show up on the, on, on the roster. So just putting into context a little bit, I know it's not complete apples and apples, but just causing our, our awareness to go up to say, man, these are issues that we should be fighting every single day. And it isn't a crisis only when it's in Iowa. It's a crisis when it's in any city, county around the country. And it's a problem that's far too pervasive in too many poor communities and communities of color. So, so Dale, you're here as our gladiator, right? Like you're out on the hustings fighting about these, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing these cases. You're not chucking your hands up and saying, you know, the systems are broken. I guess we should all move to Norway. You are, you are doing uh, uh, the litigating. And, and I think that's a little bit why you have the most furrowed eyebrows when we talk about, you know, ha how some of this feels hopeless sometimes because you're trying, I think, to make it less hopeless. And I wonder if you could just give us a quick survey of, you know, the cases that are out there that you're involved in, what you're watching, the ways in which actually the guardrails, the legal guardrails are, are fixing some of the things we've talked about or may fix some of the things we've talked about. Well, you know, I don't want to be Pollyanna either. Um, I am nervous about communicating a message that could be disempowering to folks, telling folks that, you know, the system's unfair, people are being excluded. I don't want people to go from that to thinking that the system itself is illegitimate and that their participation no longer matters. But at the same time, I also don't want to give people uh, 
an idealized view, I wouldn't be doing the kind of work that I'm doing, bringing lawsuits around the country to remove barriers to eligibility and voting if I believed we were in an okay situation um, at this point. But just to give folks an overview of some of the work that the ACLU is doing and the work that I lead, we're bringing lawsuits around the country to expand uh, who's eligible to vote, to make voter registration easier, to remove obstacles from voting uh, during early voting periods and on election day. And we just, just to give you an example of the first category, eligibility, um, we just got a ruling in a case that we have uh, today um, in Florida, that people might have heard about. Um, Florida is one of, or was until 2000, through 2018, one of only four states at this point with laws on the books that disenfranchised you from voting for life if you had any single felony conviction. So one felony conviction, you're ex excommunicated from civic society for you, the, your entire life, right? Um, because Florida's so big, um, that meant that uh, there were a lot of people and a large proportion of the people disenfranchised nationwide um, just in that one state. Six million people barred from voting nationally because of a criminal conviction, 1.6 million in Florida. So almost a quarter of the disenfranchised nationally in a single state and a single very important um, state. Uh, the numbers in Florida are kind of shocking. People don't believe me when I give people these numbers, but it's one out of 10 adult citizens in the state. It's uh, more than 20% uh, of the adult black population of the state of Florida. So when you, when you think about those numbers, which I think are really a testament to how we've overcriminalized um, society and, and to what mass incarceration has done uh, to our society. But when you think about those numbers, I think it's really hard to, and here I'm going to do the thing I said I wasn't going to do, but I, when you hear those numbers, it's hard to think of Florida as a real functioning democracy, right? When that many people... Easy, easy, easy. <laughs> <laughs> but when that many, when that many of your uh, 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 citizens are excluded from participation in civic life, it really, I think, does at least raise that question. Well, Florida came back um, after the voters of Florida in 2018 passed a constitutional amendment that would automatically restore voting rights to people upon completion of their sentence. The Florida legislature came back in 2019, passed a law that said completion of your sentence includes repayment of all fines, fees, court costs. Um, you know, in Florida, they assess you a court cost to assess whether or not you are sufficiently indigent as to uh, uh, be entitled to a public defender. Seriously, right? So, you know, you walk out of uh, uh, a court for a criminal prosecution with between $500 and $1,000 just in uh, costs and fees assessed to you for going through the system. Um, our initial estimate was that of the 1.4 million people uh, who've completed their sentences, for the people that we could get data on, about 80% of them still have some legal financial obligations associated with their sentences, and that uh, the, the percentages are higher amongst um, people of color than they are amongst uh, white former offenders in, in Florida. Um, so we know what kind of effect this is going to have. We got a great ruling from the district court um, in this case last year, and just today, this morning, um, a panel of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that ruling holding that if people can't afford to repay those financial obligations, that can't be a reason for excluding them from the franchise. 
It is a limited ruling. It only applies to the 17 plaintiffs in this case. Um, but if all things hold, they will be permitted to vote in the March presidential primary. And we go to trial in April. And hopefully, that will resolve the status of the hundreds of thousands of other voters in Florida in the same situation. Um, so, so, Danielle, we, one of the reasons we wanted you uh, on the podcast when we were sort of conceiving of what we were going to do is, you know, you work there at the intersection of technology and privacy and free speech and law. And, you know, you, you kind of came on and scared our face off because you were talking about misinformation and disinformation and, you know, the, the specter of deep fakes and all the ways in which, you know, we think we're having a process problem about voting, but actually there's a meta problem, which is we're all pushing around fake information and none of us can tell what's real anymore. And that, I think, is a sort of grinding problem underneath whatever electoral fixes uh, uh, we could talk about. And I wondered if you could sort of give us your sort of good and bad. What what has improved since 2016? What is scarier? What do you think about when you think about this entire kind of... a cacophonous world of, of fake news and bad news, disinformation, information, foreign and domestic, that people cannot tell anymore what's true and how that inflects on how you think about the 2020 election. Okay, so maybe we should start with the good. Yeah, right? we're okay, doing good. Why not? Everybody's hoping. Uh, so I'll start just with a definition of what a deep fake is. Um, and I think what is good is we're starting to understand the phenomenon. Um, so a deep fake is either manufactured from whole cloth or manipulated audio and video that shows people doing and saying something that they never did or said. Um, and we've seen in the last six to eight months uh, a real rapid escalation of the technology that once you would look at a video and say, you know, you can see some of the imperfections, but it is developing so quickly that now it seems as if we're at that point where audio is impossible, at least for audio deepfakes, impossible to tell just as a technical matter. The, the smartest of people, the, the greatest experts can't tell the fake from the real. So when this phenomenon hits and like everything a la internet, it begins with porn, forgive me, uh, but welcome to my world, you know, um, it's ugly. <laughs> Uh, you know, the deep fakes come on the scene. There's a, a subreddit named Deep Fakes. Um, and it is basically um, porn videos with women's faces, celebrity female fa faces inserted into porn. And uh, the name is then taken from the subreddit, Deep Fakes. And it, it sort of, the notion of what a deep fake is, and it's still predominantly, so of the 15,000 deep fake videos online, 96% uh, of them are deep fake sex videos, and in 99% of the time, it's women's faces being inserted into porn. Um, and it's often true with network technologies that the first victims of mischief and abuse are women in marginalized communities, and then they get mainstreamed. So I'm trying to figure out maybe what my good news was. I was going to say, sorry. <laughs> sorry. We're having a rip-snorting good time. <laughs> okay. Um, I, we're coming to understand the problem for the fullness of it. That rather than, I think, a hype that scared people and still people were saying, what are you talking about? What is a deep fake? We at least have a phenomenon. We have our arms around it. We've seen examples. We've seen it used in satire. President Obama 
you know, uh, as Jordan Peele did a satire of President Obama, um, a deep fake. Uh, so we're coming to see and understand the problem. I just want to say that one of the things that I realized from reading Danielle's work was, you know, I thought the greatest danger of a deep fake was you'd see something and you'd think, you know, oh my God, uh, you know, uh, I can't believe what this candidate is doing. Where I think the the bigger danger is that we just come to disbelieve everything, right? And we t disbelieve truthful information, and we have a hard time knowing what's true. And I, I think you and and Bobby in your article coined the term the liar's dividend. So here you could have Donald Trump saying, that wasn't me on the Access Hollywood tape. That, that's fake news. And that becomes more credible the more there's fake actual, real fake stuff out there. Right, right. So part of the, the, the sort of play here is that if you can't know what's true and what's false, you give up on the possibility that you could ever know anything. And that's the playbook. Let's do can one. I yeah, can go, I, can yeah. I relate that to yes. the ACLU case uh, in Florida? Um, one huge kudos to you all. Uh, there needs to be defenders. Y'all need to take. Um, in the same election that I lost by 30,000 votes, which was the closest gubernatorial election in the 2018 cycle, and the closest a Democrat had gotten to winning the race for governor in Florida for 24 years, 30,000 votes, the voters of the state of Florida, 65% of them decided that we were going to be a forgiving state. Right, a state that allowed people second chances, that you were not going to be judged forever by your worst day. And obviously the legislature came into power just nakedly recognizing that, that it is possible that they could get the short end of this stick, even though the majority of people being reenfranchised are white. Yet in the first three months in Duval County, something like 54% of the people registering were black men. Uh, sending quite a signal to people around where the energy was around this. So to the idea of fake news, if everything is, you know, questionable, what is real, the lasting legacy I fear on the continued litigation, and I'm glad we are continuing it, but the, but the, but the conflict that the legislature and the governor has created is that it has thrown great doubt and suspicion and fear into the minds of these individuals who we very much so want to register to vote and get involved in the process. But in Florida, if you register to vote and you have not satisfied these fines, fees, court costs, restitution, uh, knowingly or unknowingly, you sign that you are now registering yourself to vote. If it is later found that you still have fines, fees, court costs, or restitution to be paid, you can be criminally prosecuted. So why would anyone volunteer to put themselves into a situation that you just got out of? All you want to do is participate in the democracy, make a way for yourself, for your family. But you do that now at the risk of prosecution again. And so I'm hopeful that over the length of this, this will all be worked out. I fear that in the short term for 2020, that there's so much fear in the environment that it really does complicate our ability to do the work we have to do, which is to register and re-engage these folks. I, I just want to say that I agree a hundred percent that you know voter confusion is, I think, not only something that we're worried about, but very much an, a, a goal of folks on right. the other side. Right? right. Um, the message after Amendment Four was passed in 2018 was folks can vote. The message after the legislation was passed in 2019 was, no, you can't. And now there's this court ruling. It applies to 17 people. Maybe it'll apply to more people. And I think a lot of folks are 
rightfully confused and would worry about signing a piece of paper under penalty of perjury that they're eligible to vote. One other point on that is that Florida's records on fines and fees only go back to the early 1990s. So if you have a conviction from the 80s or earlier than that, like actually some of our clients do, um, you actually can't find the records associated with your conviction to determine whether or not you've paid off all of your fines and fees, and you still, upon registering to vote, have to swear under penalty of perjury right now that you've fully discharged all of those. So it's really confusing. Um, it's, it's something, you know, in all of our cases, frankly, and it speaks, I think, to the limits of the effectiveness of the work that I do. You know, we can change the laws, but if the public doesn't understand what those laws are, if it doesn't get communicated out sufficiently in advance of an election, uh, the work that we do is only going to be so, so useful. And, and finally, finally, go ahead. Fi just want to say finally on this, and, and then we can get off Florida, at least for the bad news. Uh, uh, really? <laughs> I guess the podcast is over. I know, no, no. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> are we that bad? Uh, yes, we are. Some days. Uh, some days. Um, to understand the significance of the impact in a state like Florida, you're talking about a governor's race that was decided by 0.4% of the vote. Donald Trump won the White House by a point in Florida. Barack Obama won the White House twice by a point in Florida. Al Gore depending upon where you sit on this question, 538 votes, or as we like to say, a 5-4 Supreme Court decision, decided the presidency of the United States. And so if we think this is just, you know, a little happenstance thing, 1.4, 1.6 million people, we're talking about a state that is routinely in presidential and gubernatorial elections. In this case, the last five gubernatorial elections decided by a point, in my case, 0.4%, that these are the kind of marginal differences that can completely overturn or impact the outcome of an election. You know, it's, it's interesting. After the census case was decided, I wrote a, a very depressed piece saying it doesn't matter. People are now going to be afraid to fill out the census regardless of uh, the outcome because they sort of feel as though uh, the government's coming uh, for them. And, and a dear friend of mine sort of took me out to the woodshed under the sort of Dale Ho, Ho theory of don't keep putting the idea in people's heads that even when you win, you lose because uh, there's now confusion and a sense that uh, the system is rigged. And so it, it, it was a, a sort of good moment for me to realize that you can kind of take your wins and uh, the problem of confusion and despondency is a separate problem. Let's do this quick, quick lightning round uh, with the caveat that Dale does not want to participate. But just a sort of 15, 20, 30 seconds of what your, when you project forward, Rick, to 2020 election night, what is your nightmare? And then once we get it out there, we're going to fix it all. But just tell us your worst case sure. scenario. And I should say, we already talked about one on the podcast, which was, a cyber attack on a democratic city in a swing state that cuts the power to Detroit or Milwaukee. But that's not mine tonight. Oh, good. You've so, got a different one. Yeah, so here's <laughs> one. Uh, Pennsylvania's changed the rules. This is a good thing. It used to be that if you wanted to vote absentee, you couldn't show up at the polls on election day. You had to have a good excuse. Now they have no-fault absentee balloting, which is good, except it takes a long time to process absentee ballots. And we know that in Pennsylvania, we also know that in Michigan, where they made the similar change, it may be days before we get the results of the presidential election in November. So here's the nightmare scenario. It's election night. It all comes down to Pennsylvania's electoral votes, as it did the last time. 
and Donald Trump is ahead uh, on election night, and he declares victory. And the networks say it's too close to call, too early to call, uh, because there's all these ballots to count. But yet, Trump says, as he said in 2018, in uh, the mayor's race and in the Senate race, he says, no, you know, the only the ballots that come in the first night, those are the real ones. Everything else is, quote, massively infected. So Trump claims victory, even though four days later, the Democrat is declared the winner. So Trump then goes to the Republican state legislature and says, you know, why don't you send in a slate of electoral college votes for me? Because the Constitution gives you the power to choose the electors. And so two slates of electors go to the... Uh, so the United States Congress, where according to a bunch of arcane rules, the House chooses the president, but under a rule where each state House delegation gets one vote, one state, one vote. And there are more Republican state House delegations than Democratic state. So Trump could actually lose the election according to the count in Pennsylvania from election officials, but be declared the president again. So that's just one. You, you didn't, you've given that some real thought. That did not that just trip good. off your tongue. Okay, I'm going to skip Dale for a minute. Danielle, tell us your, your nightmare scenario. You talked about it a little bit, but, but tell us what you're, when you think about what could really go wrong in your lane at least, what do you worry about? So in the night before an election, there's a deep fake showing the, one of the major party candidates doing and saying something, let's just imagine, so despicable about kind of a core block of voters who that person needs to go out and vote. Um, so offensive. Um, and it spreads like wildfire, right? It's not only on Twitter and Facebook. Um, it's being, you know, shared on WhatsApp and, um, and it tips the election. And, of course, you can't undo an election. And so significantly, too, it sort of shakes how we think of elections, the legitimacy of elections. On the theory that this is so far-fetched, it's really not. So in the Philippines, about six months ago, there was a deep fake of someone who was up for um, a very important official in the government, up for a position, and a deep fake um, went around showing him having sex with another man, which is illegal in, in the Philippines, and he was removed from the job. It turns out it was a faked video, and the same is true for, so yesterday in India, um, there was a deepfake actually released by a candidate for office. Um, there was a message he gave, but then he, it was showing him in the many different languages. So he perpetuated a fraud, suggesting that he was speaking languages. He did not, different dialects, he did not speak, right? And so we sort of see brazen deepfakes, not a hostile state actor, right. it's not a hostile party, so to your opponent, it's our own officials creating deepfakes. Um, to per per perpetuate fraud, and it's happening in the here and now. So I always feel like I'm a little hysterical, and that's okay. But but it's not far fetched right. in that way. Right. I'll leave it there. Andrew, do you have a nightmare scenario? And and I, I yes, wager, I do. We're, can li you we're, we're this? living it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Donald Trump is president. That is my <laughs> uh, nightmare scenario. I can't participate in that kind of um, game theory, but um, I don't think it's going to be certainly in a state like mine and maybe those close to mine an actual episode necessarily i think it is the cumulative effect of all of these what we might think of as little things that are contributing to what will ultimately i believe will be a one percent 
difference outcome in my state. So the voter purging that has happened, 300 and almost 390,000 over 2019. Um, and my, you know, thanks to court litigation, we got the signature mismatch sort of figured out, but we don't necessarily have the college campus and the voting precinct thing make, you know, all the way figured out, although we're working through some compromise uh, on that. Um, but, but I think it's going to be all of these small things, long lines. Um, Florida has already, already been the country's uh, nightmare uh, a la 2000 election. So we can actually deliver this thing again to y'all, right? Uh, uh, Florida is the gift that keeps giving uh, when it comes to these things. But I think it's going to be the cumulative effect of everything that they are doing right now that will absolutely weigh on Florida's 29 electoral votes because we are, I think, of all the states that are swing states, the only swing state that could by itself to determine the outcome of the election with his 29 electoral votes. Dale, uh, I, I, I'm looking at you with scared <laughs> eyes, but do you have a sort of nightmare scenario or are you very much of the view that everyone will ride in on a white <laughs> pony and vote and the election will be awesome and even if you don't think that, you're not going to say anything else? I like ponies. <laughs> um, ponies. Well, actually, I had similar thoughts to those expressed both by Andrew and actually by Rick, too, about the effect that more states having no excuse absentee voting is going to have. It's a good reform, right? It, states that have it tend to have turnout that's about two percentage points higher than states that don't. Michigan and Pennsylvania, two very, very pivotal states in the 2016 election, have adopted it for the first time in an election. But it might mean that the counting is going to keep going well past election night, and that could create a problem. I'll step out. Of, I, I think about like the legal regimes, right, and 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 the effects that those might have. But I'll step out of my lane a little bit and just talk about voting trends and demographic patterns. And you've probably all heard this: that the dissonance between the electoral college or the potential for dissonance between the electoral college and the popular vote um, seems to have increased, right? Where we saw a popular vote margin of 2.7 million um, in 2016 and Trump win the Electoral College, it's very conceivable that the, that the popular vote margin could be double that, um, and uh, Trump could still win the Electoral College, right? You could imagine an energized Democratic base in California and New York, you know, turning out in higher numbers. You could imagine the changing demographics of states like Texas and Arizona and Georgia pushing those states much closer than they have been in the past. Texas was closer in the 2016 presidential election than Ohio was, right? And people don't, generally don't tend to think of Texas as a swing state, but they think of Ohio as one. So you, you could imagine the margin for the Republican candidate falling in some of these Sunbelt states, but not so much that those states actually tip over. And you could see uh, uh, the same alignment of states Overall, and now we will have been in a situation where in half of the last six presidential elections, assuming 2020 goes the way that I'm suggesting it might, where there's a divergence between the popular vote and the electoral college. 50% of the time, which we had only had, what, you know, two or three times before the 21st century. That, I think, is alarming. And when you look at population trends and see that, oh, about you know, 70% of the population by 2040 is expected to live in 15 states, right? Um, the sort of structural imbalance caused by the Electoral College starts 
to become even more alarming. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Okay, so look, we promised a happy, happy show full of easy peasy fixes. Um, I should stipulate Rick says in his his book that he can't think of like really great short-term fixes between uh now and november but i wonder if you know we're we're all presumably smart people who've thought of these what are some and and feel free if you want to respond to one another's nightmare scenarios or or give us some thoughts about things whether it's legal fixes which i think i've learned throughout this podcast there's not a lot uh, of, of these problems that can be fixed uh, through, you know, sort of any regulatory regime that pops to mind. But I wonder if we can, can at least muddle through some of what we're worried about and talk about, if not fixes that we can put into place but before uh, 2020, medium-term going forward fixes. Rick, you want to start? Sure. So uh, I finally got a hold of this. I, I'd heard it happen, but I didn't see it myself but someone sent me a clip today check the video yes maybe it's a deep <laughs> fake it was wolf blitzer on cnn standing in front of a negative countdown clock how many hours since the iowa caucuses ended before we had a result so some of this is the responsibility of the news media and the news media needs to be educated that they need to explain that slow count like fine wine you know a good election count takes time and just have a glass of wine and wait for the election results. And maybe you'll have to wait a day or two. And I think we have to change expectations because, you know, cable news, more than anything else, is trying to create a sense of drama, even when there is no drama, like when you're waiting on exit poll results or, you know, you're waiting to call a state. And that drama can contribute to people's angst, right? Or the, the New York Times meter. Do you remember that? Yeah. That say, you know, Clinton or Trump. So I think the media needs to tone it down. And, you know, I'm actually, I've formed a, an ad hoc group and we're going to come up with recommendations by early May over what people at, you know, Facebook can do, what the media could do, what local election officials can do. I think we have to think about it in small bore problems. There's no one magic fix. We're not going to solve the voter purge problem by 2020, but there are things that we can do. And the news media has got some responsibility here. And, and would you, I would maybe uh, add to that, and you've, I think, made this point. Also, just when you make a mistake, you say it. And that the culture of nothing to see here, nothing's wrong, we didn't do anything wrong, and that simply 
it's part and parcel of this sort of performance aspect. Like this is not a circus. This is democracy. And when there are errors and there will be errors, the single worst th thing you can do when everybody is paranoid is to lie. Well, I remember on uh, when the Iowa results were coming out, uh, everything was, just, it was slow, but it was when the Democratic Party put out a statement saying that there were, quote, quality control issues, oh. that I knew that something was <laughs> up. Like, fess up to the it. The app and, and then they announced partial counts, and then they had to take them back because they did them wrong. I mean, they're still fighting now over those counts. So, uh, yeah, you have to fess up to your errors and explain what happened. Transparency is the number one thing on the list for election officials. Okay, Dale, what do you got? Well, <laughs> I mean, to Rick's point, though, about... Um, you know, expectations on when we're going to get results. It's 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 really, I think, as a cultural phenomenon, very difficult in the social media age when there's such a premium placed on speed, right? Everyone's got to have the fastest take, the quickest result. If the tweet doesn't start with capital breaking, you know, people don't want to read it sometimes. And I, so I don't know what the solution is other than that. I think it goes even beyond kind of media practices and just kind of cultural expectations in our 24-hour on-demand social media world. Um, but <laughs> uh, one easy fix on something that we talked about earlier, the absentee ballot counting issue, right? In Michigan, I mentioned, is one of those states, closest state in the 2016 presidential election, now has no excuse absentee voting. Um, they have a requirement in Michigan that the ballots cannot be counted until election day. That's not a very good legal requirement when you expect the number of absentee ballots to skyrocket this year compared to previous years. The Secretary of State of Michigan is pushing for a simple fix for this. Let us start counting the ballots, she's saying, as soon as they come in, right? It's a, it's a no-brainer, right? So there are some technocratic, should be non-ideological fixes to some of the problems that we're talking about that will at least hopefully reduce the likelihood of the kind of nightmare scenario where we don't know who won Michigan or Pennsylvania on election night. And, and is there some engine that is pushing for some of those fixes? I mean, who, who, is somebody out there angsting about this in public in a way that could uh, allow for some of these technical fixes? I mean, it's so hard when you have 51 different right. systems governing our election systems. Whenever you talk to someone from another country and try to explain how our elections work, they're sort of, they're just kind of baffled. They look at us like, how can this possibly be? But it's, it's really hard because it's decentralized and the rules differ when you cross state lines. But in Michigan, Jocelyn Benson has gotten together with city clerks, uh, county, county clerks, and they're lobbying the legislature. Now, she's a Democrat. The legislature's Republican. The governor's a Democrat. So it's kind of hard to get bipartisan agreement on election things because everybody's looking at what might benefit their party. But at least she's putting it on the agenda. Danielle, do you have some thoughts on fixes? And, and I, I, I want you to talk a little bit about, because you've given a lot of thought to, what if we regulated Facebook? What if we regulated Twitter? What if the candidates all agreed that they just wouldn't push out, you know, something that was fake? Is this something in your world that is fixable if we put our sort of shoulder to it? And just one on the positive point, I think our electoral federalism has a real upside, which is there what isn't one point of failure. So as frustrating as it is, there isn't one bottleneck that can completely fail. 
So in a way, like as we're trying to take stuff off the rug of despair, you know, maybe we can put <laughs> our electoral federalism in the hap- you know, in the positive box. Okay, but so what what do we do that now that we have, you know, Facebooks and Twitters and their algorithms are are and in the interest of their shareholders, because there isn't regulation, is to mine our and exploit sort of the worst sides of us, right? The stuff that we're gonna like, click, and share on is the most salacious, right? And that's what earns them advertising income. Um, And so what I think we need to do is, we can't trust on faith anymore that these companies are just gonna self-regulate. Because every time they promise, and we're gonna be more responsible, MZ says to Congress, that just doesn't happen, right? So I think it's twofold, right? We need um, strong privacy rules around the use of micro-targeting ads that are not, I'm gonna go back to Rick's point about transparency, ads that are not transparent, so 8,900 ads, at any given moment, Trump is, you know, or any candidate is tailoring to someone like neo-Nazis, hum, come vote for Trump. Um, we never see those ads, and Facebook is enclosing them in a way that they were supposed to be transparent. Right now, Facebook says, eh, political ads, we're not going to let you see any of it. Right? So both privacy rules and transparency rules, the, there's like the Honest Ads Act, we can do better, Right? but ways in which we're gonna introduce transparency and accountability into these sort of algorithms of exploitation and manipulation, which is for their bottom line, it's bad for democracy. And the other is sort of my famous bugaboo, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides a legal shield for online service providers um, for content, user-generated content. And it, the whole idea of it was to incentivize self-monitoring. And the statute is called Good Samaritan Blocking and Filtering of Offensive Content. And unfortunately, the way the statute's written is it doesn't require you to be a good Samaritan. So sites that are in the business of you know, deep fake videos, they get to earn advertising income, they get to encourage people to post destruction, and they get to say, sue me, too bad, so sad, I got a Section 230 defense. And so we need to think about changing Section 230 to reintroduce the incentive to actually be a good Samaritan um, so that these algorithms can't earn you money, you can't facilitate abuse, and then walk away from it. Mm -hmm. How about you, Andrew? Would you pick up something from the... Rug the, of the despair. Ru- that rug is very heavy. The rug of despair, uh, and tell us what if if you could could. Uh, if we fix Florida, this rug would be floating uh, <laughs> uh, in the in, in the room. Um, but towards your question around 2020, things that we may be able to do, um, given the short window we have for 2020. So my first suggestion, and this is a little um, uh, self-serving in, in the sense that this is work that I picked up on in Florida, which is voter registration. If you are not actively working to increase my bias, not yours, but Democratic, big D Democrat, registration in your area, I would encourage you to figure out how you can involve yourself with an organization or an entity who is doing voter registration work. We've got over 4 million eligible unregistered in my state alone, uh, and we've fixed our attention on trying to register and re-engage a million of them in advance of the 2020 uh, presidential uh, election uh, to have impact in that process. The other thing, since this is speaking to the decentralized nature of how elections are run, largely these are volunteer structures that are being run not from state to state, but from county to county. Differences, rules can be different between those places. Florida's at 67 counties. Others have, you know, whatever number that they have. Um, I would love to see the Election Protection Brigade 
those of us who are out there trying to ensure that we are tamp downing, tamping down on deliberate intimidation at the polling places, uh, passing out leaflets, uh, material that help people know their rights when they're in some of these places. If you're told that you don't have a valid ID, this is you know th- that you have a manual or someone that you can go to to help you navigate that process. I think we take for granted how uh, difficult it is for the average person who is not doing this work every day to show up and have agency when it comes to a conflict with an elected official, uh, an elections official who's telling you that this is the rule when they may themselves be misinformed. Someone coming in and saying, I need a ballot that is in my language. You don't have the right to say, no, you cannot. You, you have to provide that person the, 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 uh, a, a ballot in which they can understand what is there. So the election protection piece, in my opinion, is something we as citizens can do since our elections are run by citizens. And by and large, I think to the extent that it will be lost, it will be lost by various elements of human error or human intake and perception that we basically are going to be the ones that screw this up. We at the individual level or get it right. Um, not, notwithstanding some of the larger, you know, sort of themes that have been put out here already. Uh, so I would just challenge people the things that you can do. You can register voters. You can engage voters. You can help turn voters out. You can join an election protection brigade. Um, because as you know, the president has already called for his people pr- practically to take arms. Go watch them. Go to these precincts. Observe what it is that they're doing. Uh, I'm not suggesting you know, a, a violent response to that. I'm simply saying we're going to need a affirming um, and positive response to that for the voters who we know may be more easily targeted here. You're right. So I would just add that when you're talking about election protection, one way of trying to protect the election is everyone should be looking at what their local election administrators are doing. There's opportunities to observe the vote. If your jurisdiction is not demanding that there be post-election audits to make sure that the voting machines are counting the votes accurately and that there's something, a piece of paper that people can look at to verify so it's not a, uh, just a computer code, it's a name that can be counted. These are the kinds of things that, because it's so decentralized, you need local pressure from local people. This is not something that's going to be solved. You know, Dale can't be everywhere. No, but I, I think I think you're making a really important point that I think gets us out of this trough that we kind of fall into, which is there is this huge leviathan, unknowable superstructure that I cannot effectuate any change. And what you're both saying is no, like the beauty of, I guess, Danielle, you made this point first, the beauty of what we think of as this like rickety decentralized system that is only as good as the like 90 year old lady who does this, you know, once every couple of years. And like, you know, is is that those are positives because you can have real influence over those decentralized local rickety systems, right? Every one of you is saying some version of that. And partially because I think at the local level, as maniacal as I believe the president is and his larger apparatus is and, and how intent and orchestrated they are in trying to bend the rules to their will to provide them an electoral advantage. Many of these local elected folks, you go to you see them at t-ball games. You engage with them. I don't think that they set out to intentionally steal elections. Now, there may be some examples, and you all probably know them better than I do, but by and large, they, do want, they don't want to be the embarrassment. They want these things to work. And so in addition to you know, going in and auditing at some level, 
You can also go and see the ballot before the ballot is put in the newspaper or sent out as an early ballot. In our state, we had instructions for the United States Senate race at, at, at one part of the page. And then it's clipped from the next page which actually has the race on it. So the instructions were not connected to the race that people were voting for. Was someone, well, the party should have caught it. But anyway, somebody should have been able to catch that. But in 67 counties where every ballot looks different, Miami-Dade's ballot is a hell of a lot longer than my ballot in Tallahassee, Florida. And so who's paying attention to that? If you engage with that early enough, can you give advice, feedback that allows for those changes to be made before we end up with something that results in something cataclysmic, but it isn't a cataclysmic activity that makes it that. It is a very small, nuanced detail that changed the outcome of an election, and we're just far too used to that where I, you know, where I live, and I think we can do something about it. So, so Dale, let's say you're talking to somebody who wants to be educated, engaged, and activated, and they just don't know. I mean, what they're hearing what Andrew Gillum is saying, and they're like, what now? Like, I could have done this. I could. What would you tell them to do between now and November that would really be an impactful some action that is not, you know, heroic that any person could undertake between now and November that would make them feel more confident in the entire process. Well, you know, as a lawyer, I'll, I'll just say something that first lawyers can do, right? Um, and Andrew mentioned the, you know, election protection efforts that are happening. There's a consortium of civil rights and good government groups that participate in an election protection program that's run by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights based here in Washington, D.C. Uh, they're nonpartisan, and uh, they set up boiler rooms, you know, these response call centers in about two dozen states um, that are on the ground even before Election Day, during early voting, but on Election Day itself and with call centers in D.C. to help people just navigate the process, right? Sometimes you get very simple calls from people who are having a hard time verifying that they're registered, having a hard time trying to figure out where their polling location is, helping people navigate those kinds of situations. And then when there is a real problem of malfeasance, like voter intimidation happening, or an election administration problem, like machines breaking down and lines being too long, then the lawyers in that room can spring into action, try to get something done um, that day to help make sure that no one's disenfranchised. Now, you know, sorry, I'm a you know, lawyer, so I'm, everything looks like a nail to me. I always think about things in terms of legal problems, but things that non-lawyers can do. Um, people can participate in voter registration drives. People can you know, participate with their party and get out the vote efforts during early voting on, on election day. It's not actually that difficult to find any number of opportunities to um, get involved if what you're interested in is helping people exercise the most fundamental right that we have. Um, it's, it, opportunities are out there. You just have to step up and take the time for it. And Danielle, I want to ask you a version of the same question, except yours is kind of existential, which is what do you tell people who are at this sort of, you know, the place that, that Rick Hassan describes of, you know, I guess all news is fake and whatever I see on election night is going to be fake. And I guess, you know, as my son would say, he's here somewhere, I should just move to Mars and date Mars women because the planet Earth is functionally over. Um, what, 
he's going to be... That's bleak. Yeah, that's that's what he says. The Mars girls. He's never going to forgive me for this. We'll have to edit out. Um, Danielle, what do you tell people who say we are now in this, like, quagmire of misinformation and disinformation? I don't know how to tell my parents what's true and not true. How do we navigate this? So let's not forget, right, that we have sources of public trust, right? PBS, NPR, BBC. You know, we often sort of, um, you know, sort of forget that we do have media where we say that they, they enjoy the public trust and for darn good reason. Slate, right? I, you know, our go-to. Thank you. <laughs> right, I have my Slate coffee cup at home because I was one of the first plus subscribers just saying, Thank love you. Slate. Um, all subscribe. So, um, but those are really incredibly important. Don't rely on Facebook and Twitter, right? Uh, Unless it's someone who's part of that public trust and they're linking to articles in Slate, right? Um, You know, we have to be better consumers. And of course, at the same time, we have to remind ourselves that the distrust that we feel that liars are leveraging, that Bobby Chesney and I call the liar's dividend, is going to lead people to say, eh, just believe what you want to believe, truth be damned. Uh, and then folks are going to be self-serving to escape accountability. Just We have to remind ourselves of that. I don't think we should stop efforts to educate ourselves about deep fakes and the problem of disinformation and propaganda and dis- our disorientation. I think we have to look it in the eye and then look to those sources of public trust for news. Right? I don't want your son going to Mars. No, me neither. Andrew, I want to ask you uh, a version of the same question, which is, you know, wh- after what you went through, you could have been completely justified in saying, I-, I don't think this is fixable. You know, this is a this is a monstrous system that purges the voter rolls, that does voter caging, that suppresses the vote, particularly the vote of black and brown people who, who have really shouldered the burden of this for a long time, as Carol Anderson told us uh, last week. And yet you have redoubled your effort to get people to believe in voting. And I wonder, like, I I want what you're having. Tell me how you kind of get up every morning and compose yourself and say, this is a system that can still work. Mm -hmm. Well, I I, I still believe in it. Um, I worked my you-know-what off for two years trying to become governor of Florida and gave everything that I had to it. Uh, And an election that was supposed to produce 6.1 million voters, which would have been the increase of uh, uh, its share over the four years since the last governor's race, produced 8.5 million voters, right? We come close to 9 million voters in a presidential election. So we had crazy turnout, which meant people were responsive. Black voters for the first time in the history of the state of Florida voted at their share of the population. They didn't do that in 08. They didn't do it in 12. They did it in 18. Um, so I can't take for granted that uh, these folks came out, participated in the process. The election result was certainly not what I wanted and what many of them wanted for me and for themselves and for the state. But it, to me, would have felt like a total slight to everything that I said I believed in, everything that I campaigned on. If I was like the rest of the nominees who have come before me and lost and packed up their toys and went home, and I completely understand why people do it. Yeah. 
Um, uh, uh, but Florida is a state that is a winnable state. It's a state I'm raising my family. It's a state that I love. Um, and I am as idealistic about the process today as I've ever been before. And so I'm, I don't know if that's Pollyannish, but in order to keep up every day sort of recommitting to this work, there's got to be some sense of belief that it is that, that it's going to work out. Dr. King gave a famous speech, not the I Have a Dream speech, but uh, here in Washington, and I think it was later titled Give Us the Ballot. And he said, um, all I want from America is for her to do what she said on paper. And when I think about the sacrifices of people like Dr. King and Rosa Parks and all of those heroes and sheroes whose names I cannot call and faces I cannot recognize, who gave uh, life, livelihood, uh, and everything in between uh, for a cause that they themselves were not sure that they would ever be able to benefit from. There's no way I can back out from this thing, right? Uh, when people are... And I've, and I've tried to say it to young people as well on college campuses. If people are working this hard to keep your vote from counting, don't you think they know something about yeah, your vote? Totally. Don't you think they know something 100%. about the power that you can command? Totally. If they are able to keep you from this process, you don't lay down and give that up. You stand up. You yeah. stiffen your shoulders and spine and you fight back. Um, and I think if we do that, I'm convinced that there are more of us than there are of them. But what they have had the success of doing is repeatedly beating us down to the point and this is where it is the gift that keeps giving to where we don't believe. And if we don't believe and we can subtract ourselves from the process, that's the gift. That's the disenfranchisement. That is the, uh, that's the legacy of it. So no, they, you got me by 30,000. You won't get me again by 30. Right? Dale, do you want to? Do you want to? Dale's sort of tearing up here. Um, and I was responding. I just, yeah. I just loved what Andrew had to say. He was thinking about the Mars romance. <laughs> I want to give Rick a chance. You know, we've been on this journey together for for weeks now, and you and I have been sort of pinging back and forth between utter despair and the belief that you know we don't have a better system and i always think of justice scalia like you just have to beat the other you know the other guy who's running away uh from the bear and like this is what we got we just this is what we got and i wonder if you have any reflections having sort of gone through this and i know uh when we talked to carol anderson at emory last week uh it was really you said i'm just creeping up to the point where I'm, you, you know, willing to hear the word stolen, that an election was stolen. I'm not quite there yet. And I wonder if, if, if kind of going through this process, talking to the folks that we've talked to, has sort of located you somewhere uh, different from where you started. Well, I'm different five times a day. <laughs> uh, but yet I hear uh, something uh, like uh, the mayor said, and, you know, I, what I hear... Uh, is resiliency, and I hear determination, and that makes me say, you know, now is the moment for activism, now is not the moment for complacency. And because we're talking about an election being such a complex system, you've got to attack it in a lot of different ways to be successful. And so it, it, the job is on all of us. And so I, I do feel more determined going forward. You know, people said, why write a book called Election Meltdown? It's alarmist. I'm sounding the alarm. We've got nine months. Let's get to work. <laughs> 
Okay. We have just time to do one more quickie lightning round, but but Rick and I have promised throughout that we are going to end this thing on a high note, and we're also going to give people an action, something they can do tomorrow morning when they get home, and something they can do in two months, and something they can tell 10 people to do. So I'm just going to sort of go through down the line and ask you to give the folks in this room who came out here despite the fact that the first four episodes may have depressed or alarmed <laughs> them, they came out here because they want an idea of something they can do to fix the system. And uh, I wonder if we can start with you, Andrew. One action that every person in this room can take tonight and every day between now and November. Register as many voters as you can. We're doing it in Florida at Ford, Florida uh, action. Um, but I could guarantee you that there are outfits probably everywhere you live. Even if you live here in D.C., there are ways for you to engage remotely. We all have platforms. I know Stacy does through Fair Fight and uh, Fair Fight Action, where even remotely you can hustle. I don't mean like hustle people, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an app where you can help us through texting get people registered and engage. Register, register, register. Danielle? Educate, 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 right? Talk to folks about being smart consumers of what they read. Dale? Uh, join the ACLU People Power Volunteer Network. We're going to be plugging people into election protection efforts, the one I mentioned, um, in November. And for folks in particular states like Ohio and Arizona who are willing to do work in states like that, we're going to be working on ballot initiative campaigns to bring automatic voter registration and election day registration to those two states. We did it successfully in Michigan with a ballot campaign in 2018. We're going to replicate that in two states in 2020. Okay, and Rick Hassan, one thing that everyone in this room can do to help American democracy survive, not just the 2020 election, but beyond. What is a thing, an action step everyone in this room can take tomorrow morning? Don't be complacent. Look at what the media is doing, what your local election officials are doing, what your elected officials are saying, and speak out when you see something that's wrong. And don't spread misinformation. Uh, be a I don't want to say good Samaritan, but be a responsible person and talk to your neighbors, especially if you disagree politically with them, because we're in a very polarized moment right now, and we're in a moment of technological change, so we're in a very precarious position, and the more that there can be actual dialogue between people, I think the better off we're going to be. So I want to, I really want to thank everyone who came out here tonight, Dale Ho, Mayor Gillum, Danielle Citron, and a Special, special thank you to Rick Hassan for bringing us the idea of doing this podcast, putting so much hard work into it. I want to thank all of you who came out here to join in this conversation. Um, and I want to thank you in advance because I know you're going to be putting the integrity of the 2020 election front and center in the coming months and help spread the word that this is neither pointless nor futile. This is something that really is on each and every one of us to buy in and make change. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you to my extraordinary guests. Let's keep fighting and let's be here in a year to celebrate the fact that democracy survived. Thank you, Dahlia. Dahlia Lip. And that is a wrap for this final part of the Election Meltdown series. Slate Plus members, keep an eye on your feed next week for a special bonus wrap-up episode. Rick Hassan and I will have a debrief on the entire series. 
Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for your support through this series, your letters, Facebook messages, suggestions, and those of you who came out to see us in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday made all the difference. If you'd like to get in touch, our email as ever is amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Extra special thanks to Slate Live's executive producer, Faith Smith, and to Rosemary Belson for her steady hand on the controls in Washington, D.C. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back with a fresh new amicus next week.